0: So we're gonna we're gonna jump right in because now let me just ask you, and, and this is a real poll, I really want to know. How many of you have ever had one of my Bible nerd theology kind of like freakouts with you? How many of you? Is it one, two, three? Yeah, my sons are all like 1 yes, Corinthians 15. I'm not kidding. Thursday afternoon. I had done so much studying, so much studying. Then I did a two-hour session with two scholars going through and discussing the Greek and everything in here. Like, total nerd moment. If you have glasses, push them up. It's a total nerd moment. And at the very end, this huge picture comes out, and and I've got, you know, lines and notes and everything all in here. There's so much in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to have to do it in two parts, but the services are going to be five hours long. So, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, partially, because I would love for them to be that long. I'm sitting in my office. All of a sudden, I get up. My poor wife, she's working on some children's ministry stuff, and my door flies open, and it hits the wall, and I'm like, I can't handle this. Something huge just hit me. So I'm going to try, and I boiled it down and boiled it down and boiled it down and boiled it down and prayed to see how God wanted to, to break this down for us because it's important that when we understand Paul's letter to Corinth... You guys can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's what we'll be studying today. When we understand more Paul's letter to Corinth, there is a a theme that he's going for. You'll see the the title for our series is How to Play Church. And those of you that haven't seen this graphic before or haven't been part of the series before, that is tongue-in-cheek because that was the problem in Corinth is that people were playing church. They were doing things in their life to try and obligate God to like them more. And the irony is, is that God knows everything, both our past, our present, and our future, and still likes us. So performance doesn't change God's desire for us. So Paul gets into all these things that are going on in Corinth, and they're, they're making up things to make church better. They're making up things that make Christianity and so on. And one of the big things that he starts hitting on in 1 Corinthians 15 is now getting into the, the, the basic gospel message and how... The, the Corinthians and even us as, as modern-day Christians in America have taken pieces of the gospel out and either forgotten or never learned it. And so he goes in and, and starts off with a reminder in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, listen, I need to remind you. And I think for us, whether you've been following Christ for, for five minutes or 50 years, we need to be reminded because... Well, l- let, me, let me ask this question this way. How many of you are... The classic complicator. You could take something as simple as making a toothpick and turn it into a multi-million dollar cost. Yes. We're complicators. We can take something as simple as, I'm going to sit down and do this. Now, by the way, I make a killer cup of coffee that will literally, you will smell the color of nine when you are done sipping that cup of coffee. It is good. And you're welcome for being so weird and particular that makes the coffee that good. We need some people that make things complicated because they're the ones who are going to stress and, and you know, die at 47 years old because of stress and so on. But we got really cool inventions from them. Well, Paul knows that humans in general complicate things. Many of us may have come from a background understanding Christianity and religion in this context of very huge list of rules and what you can and cannot do and how does Christ relate with you and how do you relate with Christ and when is it that God likes you and when is it that God doesn't like you and all of those things. They may have used uh, the Bible, probably hardbound, and smacked you, and you have spiritual scars in your body from being beaten with Bible verses. And if you didn't understand what they were, you got beaten again for not understanding. And one of the things that Paul continues to do throughout this whole book is come back to the simplicity that he started with in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. His whole motivation. So these are the last two chapters of this book. It'll probably be about three or four weeks until we're done through them because I'll do a recap of the book and some other stuff. But we're going to do a two-part series. It's going to be called Drive It Like He Stole It. Drive It Like He Stole It. Now, here's the reason why I say that because when you hear the term drive it like you stole it, What does that mean? That means you don't care what happens to it. You don't care what happens really to others because it's got someone else's tag on it. You you don't care at all. You just have fun with it. You enjoy it, and then you throw it away. and you're done. We don't care about the consequences even to the the thing itself or to the people around us with that. And unfortunately, that's exactly how humanity has lived since the fall. Even in Christianity, we drive it like we stole it. We don't treat our life and our gifts in a way that honor God, that that give him the glory and the attention for what we have. And I remember I had my wife say to me at one point, actually, no, I'm not gonna use her. Um, She deserves some privacy. (laughs) I was doing, actually, it was about two years ago, I was doing some marriage counseling. And the couple, who's actually not, not here, so it's okay, they said to me, the wife said, I'm pretty sure he thinks I'm ugly, and I know it's true. And he said, no, I've nev- never have I said that, and I always say the opposite. I do believe that you're beautiful. I do believe that you, you are a gift to me. And so on, she goes, stop lying. And I just stopped right there, and I said, listen, you, sir, keep saying what you're saying, and you own that and never change it and never give up on that truth. And I looked at the lady, and I said, you need to stop telling God that he screwed up. Because you are beautiful. And I don't care what the world says. The only one that determines if you're beautiful is your creator and your spouse. That's it. And so when we think about going through the the scriptures and we start looking at, you know, who defines our priorities with our gifts and our talents and the things that God built into us, it's not us. It's not us. If I need to understand better how to use my vehicle, where do I go? The best thing is the manufacturer, not the steelership, the manufacturer. The manufacturer is the one who built it, put all of those things in it. How many of you have ever had a car, and it's been like 10 years, and some kid sits down and it presses a button, and you're like, oh, I didn't know it did that. Yes, I have things that my, my electronics do that after 15 years of owning them, all it takes is for a 6-year-old to go, bu, 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 and goes, hey, Dad, check this out. I didn't know it could do that. Why didn't I know that? Because I just engaged with it how I felt, how I wanted. In my late 20s, I had always been teaching and and leading and and teaching different classes and so on. But I had never actually, what what I believed, actually preached. And I had a guy who said, Joe, I'd really like to mentor you and work with you on on that. So we had uh, an 18-month mentoring class with a couple of the guys. And one of the requirements was to preach. So I preached and I got done and, and, and I came down and sat down next to, to my mentor, and we were talking about how things went. And he goes, he goes, that was great. God really spoke to me. And I go, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't realize God had put that in me until someone gave me a challenge. And it was incredible to see what God has continued to do with that over the years. So the challenge that I have for us for this two-part series in 1 Corinthians 15 is this, is to to change drive it like we stole it to drive it like he stole it. It changes our mentality. It says, well, I'm going to go back to the manufacturer, the one who gave this to me, who built this for me, and say, what do you want? How do I find that purpose and and that that motivation in life? We're going to read through 1 Corinthians 15, But here's what we're going to do. Flip to the very last verse, and then we're going to read through halfway. The very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 says something. starts with the word, therefore. And Paul takes 57 verses to get his point across. We know Paul. You guys think I spoke a lot. Paul would teach for like 24 hours. People would pass out and fall out windows. So, and that's why you guys have chairs in case you pass out. Verse 58 says this, Therefore, after all the things that I'm going to teach over the next two weeks, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, have you ever had a job or or something that you did, and it, and it, and it it just fell apart in front of you? All the work that you had done, everything you had put together, all of it. How many of you have that brat little brother or sister that broke the puzzle or the toy on you growing up? Nobody. So you all are the brat? Is that what it is? You're the ones who broke my stuff, right? I'm the oldest, so every one of them are all brats. They always broke my stuff. Everything's ruined. All the work was for nothing. Here's the thing for us to realize. All work for God is worth everything. It's impossible to not have a return on investment when we invest in God. That's neat, Pastor. I've heard that before. Then you need to listen better. Because it's so true. There's never a time that praise and worship is the, it's the wrong time. You're not going to start praising God if someone's going to go too soon. Never going to happen. It's always time to praise God. Well, what if this happens, Joe? It's time to praise God. But what if this happens, Joe? It's time to praise God. He's the almighty, most high, the creator of all things, the, in, the most innovative being before, outside of time, and after time. He deserves our worship no matter what our situation is. And this is where Paul is coming from in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says in that context, dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. There are going to things, be things that move us in our life. There are going to be things that feel like a wrecking ball that throws us 500 feet away from where we think we're supposed to be. But we can't have anything move us off the foundation of God. Nothing can move us off of that. Anytime I do any mentoring or counseling with people, sometimes it'll feel like I'm negative to passions and desires and and giftings and strengths. But whether it's doing one-to-one men's mentoring or marriage counseling or, or working with a group of people, we're, we're starting up a, a leadership thing I'll talk about uh, after the teaching. Without a strong foundation, it doesn't matter how much performance we add to our life as Christians. If we don't have a strong foundation, we don't have anything to stand on. That's why we're going to study verses 1 through 57. Not today, but over the next two weeks. Because we've got to have that strong foundation. We have to have. Let's let's read a couple of verses because I'm going to knock out a couple of things. Let me give you two points. This is is what I want to start with for this series. Number one, based on verse 58 and everything we're going to study, this is what God is saying to us. We can have an unmoving purpose and identity. Think of that. How many of us would absolutely love to have an unmoving purpose, something that you know that, that I I'm, I'm always know what to do every day? I know that's what I want. What about an identity, something that can't let us down, something that says I am who I am because of something outside of me says that? And I sure hope it isn't a friend or someone else because they wake up grumpy one day, which is pretty much December through February. Everybody wakes up grumpy in Alaska. Someone's opinion changes of me and my identity is crushed. But God's opinion of me hasn't changed. Here's something to realize. If you have not got the book, What Does God Want? The one that's our book of the month. Do it. It's only $10. If you can't afford it, come to me. I will buy it for you. It's so important. Here's a a quote from that book. He says, Christianity is not performance-based. He said, "Here's, here's the reality. That God knew us in our sin, knows us in our sin, knows what we're going to do, knows we will have mistakes and sins, and still loves us. At the lowest we've ever been, at the darkest we've ever been, at the most horrifically disgusting we've ever been, he still loved us. That's a huge, huge fact we have to realize. That because I come to Christ... It doesn't all of a sudden go, okay, well, I loved you, but it was a trick. Now you have to do tricks for me and dance and and do all these special things so that that I can love you more. God's message to us is that it's never been performance-based. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more because he loved me at my lowest. So anything I do is just a gift in that case. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And that is is what God offers to us when we're truly living all within him. Here's number two point. These are kind of the the basis for what we're gonna read through here in a minute. We have, have, have to be dedicated to his work. See, the, 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 the necessary thing with belief in God or belief in anything, is that if I believe something, I unbelieve the other things. Here's a great example. If I said to you, every chair in here has one stick of dynamite and a 30-second timer on it, none of you could say, I believe it, and not get up, unless you're suicidal. You can't say, I believe it, but I think it's going to happen different this time. When you believe that there's a stick of dynamite, you act on it. You unbelieve the fact that there wasn't a stick of dynamite there. Belief requires that the other things that are not part of that belief are unbelieved. That's the natural part of belief, but modern American Christianity and modern American spiritualism and other things want to say, well, you can believe whatever. Even if they exclude each other, just push something together that feels like it works. And if it doesn't work, then change it. I'm sorry, but I have a panic attack just thinking about that. I want to know my foundation is sure. I don't want to get in my car and wonder if all four tires that I bought from four different people from four different places on Facebook might work. I want a firm foundation. I want something that's going to get me from point A to point B. So it's important that we realize that if we're in God's life and we're believing him as Christians, he has stuff for us. He has gifts that we have. He has ways that that he's working out things in our lives. And here's the next point for us to think about just before we start reading. I know I'm like pre-pointing it all. The work that God's calling us to and doing that work, we should do it. He deserves it. And and you can read this and put whatever kind of uh, grammatical notes on it you want to. Do God's work because he deserves it. You could yell that way, but that's not what he means. That's not what he wants. The realistic nature of it is is that he he deserves it. He He made you. He made me. My desire to do the work of God has to come from something that says, you know what, God, you're awesome. You deserve everything from me because I'm all yours. Always have been. Even when I didn't recognize it, I always have been and I always will be. And so that's why when we give up those things to God, we have that unmoving purpose, that identity. And then we create that virtuous cycle as we become more dedicated. Our purpose becomes clearer. Our foundation gets stronger. We become more dedicated. And it just strengthens and strengthens and strengthens. But when we start injecting into our life the things that we call God, and they fail us, we then blame God for things he never was involved in, and we lose our purpose. And we lose our faith. And we lose our identity. And then you come and have coffee with me and you start blaming God. And I say, stop blaming yourself and calling it God. And I get really mean and laugh at you and then love you at the same time. Because I've had those conversations with people. I've just lost my faith. I say, well, good, because that faith was crappy if you could lose it. Faith in Jesus will never die. He, he can't. He's already died for it. There's no death that'll ever happen to grip it. There's no worry at all. He's got it. Now, I could probably end the teaching right there and just have an awesome rest of the weekend. That, that for me, was so powerful. That was kind of the ending. But we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15 now. Not all of it. We're going to kind of stop halfway through. And we're breaking up the teaching into two sections. Kind of, why... Can we have this? And how can we have this? So here's, here's the why. Let's, let's start reading here. verse uh, Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand, meaning you have staked your life. By this gospel, you are saved. Grammatically, there's not a period there. The existence of the gospel doesn't save people. What is it? Holding firmly to the word that was preached. It's not just the existence and the work of Jesus that saves us. It's us accepting him and believing in him and obeying him that changes us. It's like a guy decides to show up and he's selling Hot dogs and fries and all kinds of delicious, maybe some of those big, huge corn dogs fresh right out of the fryer right there in the parking lot. Do you have one in your hand right now because he exists in the parking lot? No. Now, half of you want one right now because I just explained that. How many of you have to get a corn dog every year at the fair? Anybody? Yes. Yes. Oh, I love it. If you guys are wondering what's going on, you haven't been to the fair and you haven't had a corn dog yet. Just because it exists doesn't mean we have it. God wants a relationship. So it's important for us to understand. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Now that's a theme that Paul's going to go into because there are parts of the gospel message that in entirety is how God wants us to interact with him. Not to just come up and go, yeah, I like this Jesus thing. I'm just going to you know, swish the water around and things like that. That's not our relationship with God. That's not how he operates. That's not how it operates. You are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. You can't believe in the existence or the validity or the niceness of the gospel. It has to be something that transforms you. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What Paul means when he says first importance is this is the first thing I said to you when I arrived here. This is the first thing I was focused on. If I was going to argue with anybody, it wasn't going to be over a parking spot or who their favorite governor was. It was going to be over Christ. Paul talks about that, actually, and we'll get into that in a second. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter's, his name, and then to the Twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So whether then it is I or they, he's saying here that whether it was the apostles or, or someone else that speaks and, and teaches the gospel or it's me that's teaching and preaching it, this is what you believed. He takes 11 verses to remind the Corinthians and say, listen, this is what you were taught. This is the entirety of the simplicity of the message of Jesus. He clearly lays this out. And the reason for that, and you'll, you'll notice this in Scripture, you'll notice this just in relationships, sometimes we have to kind of remind of the context. If Paul started on verse 12, he wouldn't have a basis. He wouldn't have a basis for why he's saying what he's saying, but he had to say, listen, the gospel message itself, the work of Jesus itself had all of these components to it, all of these theological things, and not only... Do you have a reason to believe it? You have all these witnesses that have said, yeah, I was there. I've seen him. So they have very little excuse to not believe and not be affected by it. So you know when Paul's starting to give a good basis and a foundation, that's actually when you start to get a little uncomfortable. Because now he's responding to a question that someone had. had, And here's what he says, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, in children's church, if you were part of children's church growing up, you you had this fun little thing you would do with the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees were a group of religious believers that didn't believe in the resurrection. And then you would say that's why they were so sad, you see, And it's cute, but it's the most horrific theological butchering of resurrection. And I mean that in the nicest way possible I can say it. Because we miss something about resurrection. See, the belief of resurrection in that Greek time, for many people, was that it was simply this spiritual, this vaporous thing that would happen. And that's it. They would believe that this almost like a ghost, for example, would show up. And that was it. There was no impact. There was no uh, real relationship that happened in a true resurrection that Paul's defining here. Jesus Christ being that resurrection. They had resurrections where, where they believed them based on the Old Testament, which is more like a, a reanimation. A young child had uh, died. A prophet found uh, this, this mother and her son. The son died. The prophet prayed, and that son came back to life in the Old Testament. It's a reanimation. Same body, same spirit, same mental capacity, same physical abilities. It's a reanimation. There was a miracle that returned the soul and body together and they were healed and lived. But that's not resurrection. Resurrection is not a ghost appearing. Resurrection is not just simply reanimation. Resurrection in the context of the New Testament is first given to us an example of Jesus. Jesus resurrected Came out of death, and the only way he could defeat death, meaning dying, going to hell, and coming back, was for some weird combination we can't understand, where it was kind of physical and kind of spiritual. It's a brand new thing. It's like scientists would say, we've we've discovered a new entity or a new organism. This body type, and we'll get into this next week, this body type is new, never been seen before. But it was promised. It was promised to us back in Genesis chapter 22 and 24. We'll get into that also. So Paul says here, listen, if you guys are not believing in this spiritual resurrection, this this new body that Christ talks about, but yet you preach the gospel of Christ, how could you not believe it? you got to believe the whole gospel. you got to believe the whole work of Jesus, the whole picture. Here's what he says, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Christ didn't defeat death, he's just another person that died. He taught moral things and died. There's a lot of people that have done that over thousands of years. Taught moral things and died. That's not a new thing. That's not an exciting thing. That's a life thing. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead aren't raised. He said your belief system and and, and the incorporating of things from outside of the truth, from from cultural beliefs and social beliefs around you, is making the gospel sound foolish. Because if what you believe is true, then it goes against the gospel's work inside of you. It goes against the truth of the gospel. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins, then those also who have died in Christ, they're lost. It's over. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. If our our hope really is in this life, our only hope really is Jesus, but yet there's no resurrection of the dead, there's no defeat of death, then it's pointless. We've made up stories. It's pointless. We should just go off and go somewhere and have fun. Go do whatever. He says later, and quotes a Greek poet, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no point. There's no existence. There's there's no actual purpose to this. But Paul is dismantling this bad belief. Why? He's dismantling this bad belief so that we can have a firm foundation, that we can stand firm when things come against us. Verse 20. Paul uses a great but here and he says this. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, the human Adam, all die, we inherit the death from humanity. In Christ... All are made alive. We're going to get into a couple of things that are confusing, and I'll cover them this week and next week. Verse 23, but each in turn. Christ being first, like I said, remember, Christ is the example of this new body, this resurrection. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Those words used there are generic words. When Paul used them, he meant the actual spiritual powers, actual entities. People worshiped them as gods. People worshiped them as as spiritual powers and demons, all kinds of things. He says here that they will be destroyed. There's a scholarly work that I was studying in the, in the, the section of the scripture that he wrote on. It's called the death of the gods. Those that are immortal, destroyed by immortality himself. Things that think they can come up against God and win will lose. And we're on the winning side in Christ. Verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself. Again, Paul's saying, God is not destroyed by death. Death is underneath God's authority. So resurrection does happen. Resurrection does or has happened, and it was to God himself in Christ. Verse 28, when he's done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who we'll put everything under him. Don't worry about understanding some of the stuff. We're gonna go piece by piece over the next two weeks. Verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? We're gonna dig into that one too. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Why why are we sitting here preaching Christ if I have no hope when I die? It's what he's saying. He says, use use some logic here. I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you and Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead aren't raised, let us just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled. He quotes one of their own poets, bad company corrupts good character. I think it's funny when people quote that and say it's a Bible verse because it's actually from a Greek poem. It's in the Bible, and Paul used it to get a truth across, but it was originally part of a Greek poem. Anyway, verse 34. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant to God, and I'm saying this to shame some of you. We're going to stop right there, because we're going to cover that plus some more as we get into the rest of this this series here. But as Paul goes through this, he establishes this, this truth of Christianity, this truth of a resurrection, this completeness in the picture of the gospel, so that he can expose the fact where the Corinthians have pulled in other teachings hold in other thoughts, or not get, gotten rid of their own foolish thoughts, and we like to mix stuff. We do. How many of you are someone that has to have ketchup on everything? That's your deal. Ketchup is on everything. Anybody? Man, we're gonna have to have a big altar call. <laughs> you gotta have this. You gotta have something to dip your food. How many of you, if you get you know chicken tenders or or French fries or sandwich or whatever, you always have to have some kind of thing to dip it in? Yeah. Dippers, right? You got to have something you're mixing it in. But we can't do that with God. That's the thing. This is what Paul's saying is like, hey, it is a hamburger and fries, and you eat it. I could quote Ron Swanson right now. Okay? It's a barbecue. You eat meat, it's what you do. You don't add dip. And I'm not going to say what Ron would say, so <laughs> I'm going to offend too many people. Christianity, with our walk with Christ, it's not a matter of I'm going to eat the main meal and I'm going to dip it in a few other things. You know, it's okay, it's not that bad, it's not that, that horrible. Here's what I want us to realize. Paul's statement, and he's reminding them at the end of this letter, what he said in the beginning of the letter. He says, for what I received, personally received, I pass on to you as first importance. Here's what our reminder is of what first importance is. Paul starts off in 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 and says this, For I decided, this is a challenge for all of us, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Now, that may not seem like a big deal for some of us. Some of us might say, I'm good with being a simple person, and I just know Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you, and that's awesome. Paul didn't have that ability. He was so stinking smart. People thought he was crazy because he knew all these details about the Old Testament, all these details about the Greek culture, the Jewish culture, and all the things around the world connected to this. In fact, one of the rulers at that time said, Paul, your learning, your studying has made you insane. What is wrong with you? So Paul said, listen, even though I'm so stinking smart I could blow you Greeks out of the water, I'm putting it aside, and I just want to talk about Jesus. Some of us, that's hard to do because we want to argue certain topics. We want to have certain discussions because we feel like we're smarter than them, and hopefully if we prove that they're dumb, then they'll listen to us about Jesus. Now think about that logic. Nobody, when they've been embarrassed and found to be dumb, wants to listen to anything else you've ever said. Ever. They make sure they never talk to you again. That's why I struggle sometimes with some of that relationship, or at least that model of a relationship. What I believe God's calling us to is this, based on the challenge of 1 Corinthians 2 and then 1 Corinthians 15, is that the gospel must be of first importance in our daily life in our daily relationships. The things that we interact with people on always have to happen through the gospel. How do I say that? Well, first off, I can't relate to my God, my creator, without the gospel. First and foremost, I have no right to talk to the creator unless I do it in the context of Jesus. Second, I have no desire, no ability, in fact, very very little benefit at all Of interacting with my spouse through my own benefit, I mean through uh, without the gospel. Let me explain it. I can't be unconditional in my love for my spouse without the unconditional love of God inside of me. There will be a time that my spouse does something insanely dumb, and I don't want to love her, and I say and do dumb things and act in in ways that I have to apologize for later. And all you're quiet because you're like, "Amen." We've all done it. We've all done it. But if we operate in our marriages and in our relationships in the context of the gospel, it doesn't matter what they do. Because what? Because Romans 5.8 says that in the depths, in the darkest point of our life, at at the deepest sinning level we could be, Christ loved us and died for us. So you know what? If she says something snarky and I've got my feelings on my sleeve and I want to go ahead and lash back out, think about what Jesus has said to him every day and doesn't pop our head like a pimple. Because of God's grace, because of his love for us, that's why a marriage can be powerful. That's why we can have that unconditional love and grace. If we think about the next thing with our children, I think anybody who has kids says, yeah, I need God, absolutely, But in order to love them and truly raise them to the detriment of ourself, which is what God calls us to, we have to be selfless. We have to not care as much about our own ideas and goals and motivations and what God's are for the investments that he gave us, short-term investments that he gave us. And how am I investing into that life? Am I focused on them being happy, which makes me happy, or am I focused on them being holy, which makes him happy? The gospel says they can be holy, and in the context of Christ's work on the cross, I can be a facilitator of that. But without the gospel, my kids act stupid, I yell at them, I make them feel stupid, and send them to the room because they didn't perform for me. But the opposite in the gospel context says, yes, there's discipline, but there's an unconditional love that governs that whole relationship. It transforms it all. Next, when we get into our friends and and our jobs and everything else around us, if the gospel is the the, the lenses, the glasses that we approach the world with, we'll see the world through Christ's eyes. We'll see our spouse, ourselves, through Christ's eyes. And this is what Paul said. He said, I'm not common to sit here and prove to you how I am Captain Jew a lot. I'm the best. Y'all can't Jew like I can. No, he had to let that go. He had to say, because it ain't about who I think I am. It's about where Christ made me, and He can make you that. The gospel had to be of first importance. The temptation, a lot of times, is to engage in a, in a selfish endeavor and to engage in a political endeavor. I've never walked away from so many conversations like I have in the past two weeks during this government shutdown. Everybody has an opinion. I don't care if you're Trumpin' or Democrat or Republican. I don't care. I'm not gonna pick a side on it all. And it's kind of funny, it's a fence to pick a side. I'd rather have a conversation about Jesus. Yeah, but this is important. No, it's not. Because one day a thousand years from now, there ain't gonna be nothing here but Jesus. That's it. We gotta start there. And if that conversation comes up and someone asks you for something logical to respond with. Respond logically and then switch the subject because it has to be about Jesus. If we build a wall around this whole country, it doesn't change about the inside is messed up. We need Christ. But man, we want to wear our Trump shirts and our MAGA hats or go ahead and beat people with MAGA hats or whatever it is. No, we need to make Christ great again. That's what we have to do. And this is what Paul said. Paul even deals with a weird practice that they had about baptism of the dead. Or for the dead, actually. And we'll go into that and why Paul didn't make a big deal about it because there actually is record of certain practices of why that happened. Not that it was godly, but because their hearts behind it were totally different than what we would assume. By the way, they weren't Mormons. The gospel must be first importance in our daily life and relationships, it has to be what governs every conversation. Now, if someone comes up and goes, Hey, would you like fries with that? Hey, have I told you about Jesus? That might work. It also might mean that no one wants to talk to you because you're weird. So I'm also saying be relevant. Be relevant, but always look for that opportunity for Christ to come up. Always. Has to be of first importance. Paul starts off this letter, ends this letter with that same subject. And then he gets into verses three through eight that we read. According to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. I had a guy come up to me one time and said, you know, according to the Scriptures, we should just be reading the Bible to the unsaved people. And I said, that's great. What if they don't believe it? Well, that's the truth of it all. I said, no, what if they don't believe that this book is valid? Why would we use something they already hate? Why can't we communicate it in an intelligent way, maybe from our own testimony? Maybe let's talk about creation that's around us. We'll get to a point where they'll love Jesus and they want to know more about him, but preaching from something that they already don't agree with is not our goal. No, you have to agree with this English word here. It says according to Scripture, so, so you have to believe because it said it in the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. Not me. There's a quote from somebody else. It starts a circular pattern. It gets really messy over time. Not that the theology of the Bible Should not govern our conversations, absolutely. We can quote the Bible instead of saying, the Bible says. I've done it. I've done huge presentations with thousands of people in the business world and taught on Proverbs and taught on the truth of God and taught on servant leadership to uh, teams of, of 18 to 20 different leaders in a corporation. And they were all biblical principles. And I didn't need to once say, the Bible says. But you know what happened when someone came up to me afterwards and said, Joe, I don't know how I can do that. Listen, I cannot get away from the fact that I am driven for my career. And I said, "So you're self-centered." He says, "Yeah, what's wrong with that? Let's go have a coffee." It was awesome. God opens those doors. And the key is is that we have to be driven by how the gospel will get across. If it's not effective, it's like using the wrong language to speak it. Well, I believe Jesus spoke Spanish, so I'm going to teach the gospel in Spanish. No one's going to understand you unless you're with people who speak Spanish. It's not going to work. So Paul gets in here, verses 3 through 8, and he sets down two facts that I need us to kind of put into our, our backpack. The first fact is this. Verses 3 through 8 talk about how God fulfilled every promise he made in Jesus. If you go back, and this is why Paul says, according to the Scriptures, he's talking to people who knew of the Jewish Bible. He says, according to what you have studied, what you know, what you have tried to create your moral structures on, all of those were fulfilled. All of those were fulfilled. That's a big deal. Huge deal. It was all fulfilled. It was all taken care of. So Paul establishes that fact and says, listen, by the way, if you have a Bible that only quotes New Testament verses as footnotes for that, go get a different Bible to study that section on. Because what Paul is saying is the Old Testament scriptures, hundreds to even thousands of years before these Christ prophecies were fulfilled, and Jesus didn't go and read this and go, "Oh man, I was supposed to do this yesterday. Ah, oh, let's see, I'll do it tomorrow. Then, yeah, uh, that's what I'll do." I'll meet this person that's going to be healed. This is how I'm going to die. They're going to beat me this way, and I'm going to die at this specific time, and I'm going to do these. No, it's not contrived. He fulfilled all of these things, all of these different prophecies, and so Paul reestablishes that fact. Here's a second fact for us to look at, verses three through eight. says this, Christianity, and this is important, the word movement is important. Christianity is a movement with a guaranteed outcome. It's not a club with a set of promises of if you're good enough in the club, you'll get your monthly lollipop. If you're good enough in the club, you'll always have a good parking spot. No, it's a movement that we join and then we're advancing with him. It's a movement that we join that we continue to press forward in because the movement applies to any and everyone. It's not a club that we come in and sit back in our cushy leather chair and take out a cigar and sit back and relax and go, man, I'm glad I'm finally here. It's not how it works. Because this life isn't the end. It's a movement that we advance in with guaranteed outcomes. The picture I gave to some guys a couple weeks ago about the hope we can have in Christ. Think if you fell and you're rolling down a hill and all you could think about was at the very end there's a huge rock wall you're probably less worried about everything you hit on the way down and more worried about going about 50, 60 miles an hour and hitting a huge rock wall. It's the joke that people say, you know what, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden stop at the end. That's the problem. But in Christianity, we fall like everyone else. We're rolling down the hill, but you know what we have at the bottom of the bottom? A really cushy pillow. With people there that care for the wounds, and then we're good to go. The funny thing was, I was teaching a bunch of single guys, and I said, and every one of you has this really hot nurse that you'll get married to her after you're all healed up. And they're like, yeah, man, Christianity. I'm like, "Like, hold, hold on a second here. That wasn't prophecy. It's a picture for us. There's a hope that we can have. There's a hope that we can have that as we crash down and down and down the hill, we're like, you know what, it, it hurts and I lost my breath. And but there's a hope at the end, that at the end I've got something new. This body that's torn up from rolling down the hill for Christ is all going to be made brand new. And I have a brand new guaranteed relationship with my creator at the end. Thank you. I'm so glad someone said amen because I was about ready to yell amen. That's incredible. Drive it like he stole it, man. Dedicate that life to him. And know what the outcome, if it means that we're broken physically, and it's got a brand new one that cannot fall apart ever. By the time I was 29, I had four back procedures done. Trust me, you're getting an amen from me on a new body. I've still got screws and metal in one leg that doesn't work right. When it gets cold in the wintertime, all I can feel is a piece of titanium sometimes. I'd love to have a new body. Some of us in here are like, yeah, can it happen now? It's important for us to realize that we have that guaranteed outcome, but it's it's a movement that we're joining and advancing towards. We enter into the kingdom and advance with the king. Paul continues now in verses 12 through 19 and starts to get into this resurrection of the dead, and what he's doing is he's exposing the cracks in their foundation of faith, He's poking at the problems in there, and and here's the thing that he does, and I think he says this very clearly, and we'll go into it. We have to understand Jesus' whole mission, or our faith has cracks. Our faith has problems, and this is what Paul's saying. He goes, you guys are Christians. I get that. I'm not even doubting your salvation, but what I'm saying is, is your adoption of Christ just appeared like a ghost is minimizing the fact that he fulfilled a massive promise from the Old Testament. A massive promise. Genesis made this promise. I'm just going to hint at it real quick. Genesis chapter 22 and 24. Abraham was told that your seed will be like the stars. The word numerous is not actually in the original language. The word is actually multiplied, almost like the word ascended, like Christ when he ascended on high, that we will be like Christ in his body. Not an earthly body, but a celestial body. Not something that's bound by the limits of sin and brokenness here in this earth, but a body that's, or as Paul said, a building of God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. It's far beyond just a ghost came back and we're going to float around in eternity. It is the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy that our bodies are brand new now and have unhindered access and relationship with our God and his family. If we don't have the understanding of the whole mission, then our faith can begin to have cracks. I'm not excited about being a ghost, but I am excited about being a superhero. That's that was funny because Jesus walked through walls and appeared, and re- we're going to be like him. Come on, guys, get excited! How many of you like comics or any of the superhero stuff? Marvel versus DC? Anybody? Come on, there we go. Okay. Every single one of you would love to be able to put on a cape and and tights and fly around and do something. Some of us shouldn't do that in front of others. but I'm going to get texted a bunch of pictures like, here's me, a Superman, pastor. <laughs> now I have to pray for forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, y'all are going to get a text from me in, in a Batman suit. That's what it is. No, that's terrifying. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I need to walk forward on my own altar call. We must understand Jesus' whole mission or faith has cracks. Here's what I want us to get across. We will minimize the gospel, and I don't mean it that we do it on purpose to be uh, wimpy. We'll do it because we forget the entirety of Jesus' work. Here's the first thing we'll do. We'll think the purpose of Jesus was to share morality, but that's not what his purpose was. Did he do that? Well, sure. But plenty of moral people have come and taught and died. So there's not really anything that's important on its own. The purpose of Jesus was not just to come and share morality. Next, the purpose of Jesus was not to die. The purpose of Jesus was not to come and share morality and then just die. Why? Because all of us can do that. I can preach morality. I can die. There had to be something more to his mission. So, share morality. Dying, which it's not new news. Everybody's been doing it for thousands of years. The purpose of Jesus was not to just come back to life, meaning be reanimated, that he fell off the cross and then all of a sudden goes, (gasps) okay, finish that one. Because that was already something. The reanimation thing had already happened as miracles of God in the past. No, Jesus' work was something that was beyond what any human can do. It had to include God. It had to include fulfillment of promises. There is no man that could have died a perfectly moral life And even if they did, they still had to have God to defeat the God in death. The spiritual power over death. They had to have the authority over that. Jesus had a whole mission, a complete mission. Here's what it looks like. Jesus' purpose was to come to earth as human and come to earth as God. How does that happen, Pastor? I don't know. I don't know. But he was 100% man because he had to have 100% of the punishment of man and 100% of the ability to take on the the rule of death that was on man's body and soul. But he had to be 100% God because he had to defeat that death and provide the path out of death and give that new body and fulfill the promise. Think of it like someone who you keep trying to press through and press through those alders. And you can't press through it until the right person comes through. And they just go barreling through. And then they come out the other side and they go, I made it. You follow the person who defeated the undefeatable to get out of it. God had to come to earth as a human and come to earth as God. But that's part one. It's only a part. The next piece is his purpose was to live with full reliance and unhindered relationship with God. Again, that's what's promised to us in Christianity. We like to mess it up regularly, where we depend on ourselves, We hinder the relationship. The Bible uses the phrase, quench the spirit. Another word you could use is you could put a picture in there like you're choking God from speaking in your life, if that helps understand that scripture better. Live with full reliance and unhindered relationship with God. Next, with Jesus' work, he had to die to get what man deserves because we couldn't pay for that. All of these pieces are requirements of understanding the gospel. And yes, I may be preaching to everyone here that's converted and so on, but Paul even had to do that to an entire group of people to remind them of what this gospel is. If it's of first importance, do we know it? Do we know it? And the last big piece was that he had to resurrect so he can defeat the eternal hold on humanity. We don't get that. We've been living under 2,000 years post-Christ's work, and we don't have even the memory to go back. And man, I remember in the old days when people couldn't resurrect. That's not what we say. That's what they said in this time. It was a whole foreign thing. For, for this resurrection to happen, this new thing, it had been promised for thousands of years. But the defeat of death was never possible. Death was the end. But now because of Christ, there's a victory that comes. There's a resurrection. How it happens, the details of the body and so on, I don't get. We can't understand it. God says it is a heavenly thing. It's not made with hands. It's not something that I can contrive and model in my mind and go, oh, I know how to have a celestial body. No, he says it's our gift. It's our gift. So the complete work of Christ, he outlines here, of coming to earth as a human and as God, To live that full reliance and unhindered relationship as an example for us, die to get what man deserves because of sin, and resurrect so that hold on on humanity is finished. See, Christianity and the work of Jesus is not just he died for our sins. Because if he died and there's no resurrection, then we have no hope. I'm just going to go to hell and it's over. Oh, yeah, there was a guy here that paid for you, but uh, he didn't win. I beat him up, and so I still got you. It had to finish that work. He had to pay for the sins and then get rid of the horrible person in charge of that, get rid of the title deed to humanity, and take it himself and leave victoriously. Otherwise, there is no point in saying Jesus died for our sins. As Jesus died for our sins, kicked the snot out of hell, and then rose again in a brand new body fulfilling our promise for us. That's huge. That's huge. And that's why Paul ends in verse 58 and says, therefore, guys, man, you you can stand firm. You can have an unwavering hope. You can keep going and devote yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the work you're doing in Jesus is never going to be fruitless. Never going to be fruitless. There's going to be a hope to it. Paul had to write this theme, this topic in multiple letters that he wrote. He wrote it to the people in Thessalonia. I'm going to close with these verses. You can, you can put your notes away because I'll cover these verses next week. But I just want to have them for our closing prayer this morning. The closing prayer is going to be dedicated to Understanding the cross and the resurrection, the cross, the acceptance of the work of Jesus, the the, the giving up of our will and trusting God to remove those sins so we can be with Him and have hope and purpose is based on the fact that we have, or sorry, that hope and purpose is based on the fact that there is a point to the end of that walk with Christ, that resurrection. It's not just God's going to help me stop being bad because sometimes it's not fun to be good. To be honest, it's not fun to be good sometimes. But it is fun when you're good and you know that there's always going to be a guaranteed reward. Always. I've had plenty of times I did good things and nothing good happened because of it. In fact, most of the time I got hurt usually I was doing something good. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's just how it's been. First Thessalonians, Paul uses some truths to encourage us and then we'll pray. He says this, But we don't want you to go uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep or those who have died already. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. He says, I don't want you to look at your Christian brothers and sisters that that, that have died and sit here and worry uninformed about the complete work of Jesus. That Christianity is not about some guy came and died for your sins but we don't know what happened after that. He came back and said... Winning, took it over. Proved it. I don't want you to grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If we are in Christ, the end of this physical life is the starting line for the life that matters. If we're in Christ... Paul ends that whole section, he goes into some other incredible theology, but he ends that whole section in verse 18, and he says, therefore, because you're not ignorant in this anymore, the encouragement for us as Christians is that, hey, push through, stay stuck to God, obey Him when He calls, live according to this hope, and encourage other one another with these words. That's why I jokingly say, but mostly serious, hey, Get out there and evangelize. Disciple those people. Get with the lost and share their truth. Don't waver at all in your faith. What's the worst that's going to happen? You live? Because that's the reality. That's the reality for Christ, for Christians, is that dying is not the end. Now, personally, being someone who likes a lot of hard rock and metal, I think metal does this whole idea of immortality, a really, really good service in the Christian realm, but... It's so powerful to think that in Christ, we have eternal protection. The best album title ever was from the late 90s from a band called Zeo, and it said, Immortal Until Our Work Is Done. Man, if that's not Goosebump territory, that's the encouragement Paul's talking about. That when your work is done here on this earth, it's a whole new world. I'm not quoting Disney on that one. I'm sticking in the rock arena. So here's what I want to pray about this morning. In fact, we're going to bow our heads, and we're going to close our eyes, all of us together. Here's, here's what I want to dedicate this prayer time to, because there, there is a message about the, about the cross, about the entrance into the gospel, the forgiveness of the sins, and, and, and those are amazing things, because there's nothing we can do about that guilt, ever. Ever. I've had friends of mine that I've witnessed to for years, and they say to me, Joe, I don't know how you deal with guilt. I cry every night. This is a 45-year-old man. I cry every single night to go to sleep. I have got to get rid of this guilt. And so forgiveness of sins is huge, but the sustainment after our sins are forgiven that gives us hope when life continues to have its struggles is the fact that I've got something new from Jesus that promised resurrection. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take just a minute here and I'm going to close in prayer. And if you want to enter into God's family to accept him and that forgiveness and that resurrection I would love to pray with you and you just stand in your spot. God I know when we call out to you, every single Bible verse I know of says that you answer. So, Lord, for those that stand this morning, and even those that may not, but their heart is aching for you, pray that you would hear their voice, Lord, as we pray. And you can just pray this quietly at your seat, whether you've stood or not, and, and, and allow this to be true in your life. God, I'm sorry. I've lived this life my way, and I've followed my truth, but I want yours now. I want to follow you and use the gifts you've given me for you. And I want that hope. Because of you. That there's no need for any discouragement or fear of the future. Because for me as a Christian, I have a forever hope in you. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Even though I don't deserve, thank you for forgiving me help me to be used by you to drive my life like you stole it like you gave it to me because you did amen let me pray together for all of us this morning as as we close god i i thank you for this morning I thank you for the absolutely beautiful sunshine. I thank you for the absolutely beautiful people you've placed here in this body. That you have created some amazing talents and gifts and that you have people who wonder you know, what that truth and hope is or even just this time of year where we just we start to wonder, is this worth it? God, I thank you for your hope. That at the end of the day, the end of the, the, the different discussions that we would have with so many different people, God, our number one, first importance item is you. And I pray that for all of us, Lord, as Christians, that we would really, truly be convicted by that, that we would allow for your voice to speak, and that the gospel be our focus, God, that we would not get caught up in any of their purposes. And just like so many of the songs we sang this morning, that return us to the heart of who you are, God. Lord, may we return to the heart of who you are and let your core desires drive us towards your truth. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you for all the work you've done. Amen.